welcome listeners back to Superstructure. We have a little bit of a different conversation today, uh, a second iteration of the uh, duo conversation. I'm here joined by Scott Ferguson of Money on the Left fame. Hey. How you doing, Scott? I'm all right. How are you doing? Pretty good. It's a little earlier here, so still waking up, but uh, no better way to wake up than to dig into some bizarrely surface level conversations in the superstructure. <laughs> <laughs> so we wanted to talk today in a more lengthy way about some of the method that we're thinking with and employing on this show and in the larger sort of MMT and humanities space broadly. As you may have heard us talk about it on the terms of analogy or what I have termed analogical critique in relationship to what are some other tendencies that we're going to spell out in a second, I think it's important to say that we are coming to these questions from both within and then also without the sort of dominant tendencies of dialectics or or thinking about contradiction um, in more, dare one say, Marxist or Hegelian terms. And we'll spell that out in more detail as we get through the conversation. But um, for now, I think it's important to say that we wanted to frame the way many sort of operationalize their methods on the left, whether it's in scholarship or in discursive spaces, uh, along two poles, and poles that we find quite problematic uh, for for a myriad reasons. Um, But as we're schematizing it here today, we're going to talk about the negative and positive methods, right, which are imagined to be in opposition. Um, The negative method some which in scholarship is often called the apophatic method is is a way to take a set of phenomena and uh, look at them as phenomenon in order to inflect or invoke a sort of unarticulated mysterious opposite of that phenomenon move from the positive thing in itself one could say to some sort of transcendent other now, if that's ringing abstract and like gobbledygook for you just now, we'll get there. We'll, we'll spell this out. Um, but then there is the positive method, which is sometimes called the cataphatic structure, um, which is more concerned with the things, quote unquote, as they are and predicating analysis on existence or what exists in a sort of objective quote-unquote structure um so after that little uh sort of meandering intro scott could you perhaps fill in some detail for the listeners about what we're, we're talking about here well okay so first i'd say that where this started in uh, conversation between us uh, in I think DMs, which is where all good thinking happens That's right. today, um, is us. I can't remember who said it first, but us remarking that left Twitter and kind of contemporary left journalism is pretty thoroughly positivist, right? 
and um and and then we were kind of comparing this to the more you know scholarly intellectual leftist traditions that we often study right in in the academy um that tend to be more negative and then what you just pointed out is that uh, while these are um pretty thoroughly secular projects um whether you're talking about you know kate aronoff talking about ecological politics mm-hmm. on twitter or you're talking you're talking about uh theodore adorno critiquing um mass culture in the 1940s they nevertheless are plugging into um structures of thinking and critical thinking and critical uh, revelation uh that that come out of a deeper tradition and a deeper tradition of theology essentially um mm-hmm. And in theology, we we have these, you know, two two distinct words that you just described, the apophatic and the cataphatic. The apophatic, it, 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 the etymology of the word, it, it literally means speaking off or away from. And originally it's about speaking about God or the gods, depending on what tradition you're in. I mean, if you're if you're speaking apophatically uh, in Buddhism, uh, that means something different than if you're speaking apophatically in Judaism. But both of both of these traditions, and basically all the world theologies and and religious traditions that we think of, tend to have both impulses, and with different different groups and different you know, well-known uh, theologians and religious leaders, um, kind of moving one way or the other, leaning more one way than the others. And so it's really, it's about getting a sense of what, what is inarticulable, right? What is, what is the everything? How, how does everything kind of hang together um, in ways that we can't immediately, immediately think, immediately say? And so very often the apophatic way is thought of as proceeding through negation. So in many ways by by saying well you know god is not x or god is not quite y uh, you're you're holding out in the apophatic tradition the the um the possibility that god could be something something you can't quite articulate right and it it really tries to hold open the mystery of the structure of things um, and I think there's a kind of, um, in a certain, well, <laughs> it's funny. This, I guess it depends who's practicing it, but, but I think there's often a kind of humbleness that comes with it, which is to say <laughs> a non-point of mastery, right? That mm-hmm. we don't God is know. unknowable. Yeah, right. God is unknowable. God is, God is the unknowable. Right, which is not to say absolutely unknowable, right? Mm-hmm. It's just to say, it takes some work, right, to figure it out. Yeah. And when you get to, whereas the app, the the cataphatic mode is more interested in spelling out what God is. God is love, and what is love? Well, love is um, charity, charity, and unselfishness, and kindness toward others. And da 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 da. Right. Yeah. And um, once you get to these sort of secular projects, it's not about God anymore per se. It's it's about you know the structure of political economy, the structure of you know, the way existence hangs together and this sort of thing, right? And um, it might, listeners might hear what we're saying and think that we're trying to 
map on a the- theological traditions onto today, onto Twitter, onto academia. Um, and in, in a certain sense, there is a sort of analog being posited. But I also think at a deeper level, uh, part of the stakes of what we want to discuss here is, especially given some of the resurgences of these avowedly positivist or more negative or nihilistic traditions that uh, are around us, whether in academia or on Twitter or, or in other places, is that the theological stakes are still being sort of juggled and contended with and, and have always been contended with in these various analogs. And so it's not to say in a sort of more common narrative that modernity sort of is the process of secularization and we lose this sort of sense of medieval uh, religiosity to uh, a sense of freedom and and secular liberalism that takes us beyond the need for an elsewhere, right? We just see a, a different form, perhaps a, a turn a little bit towards some positivism um, in our political, economic, and social world over history and across time. And these are, of course, contested turns at every step. But the point is, right, that there was, on on our terms, and, and perhaps in a way that we would suggest, is that there was never a fully theological moment, right, that spoke with one voice as theological and religious and then now we have something different right even even past moments were speaking to a sort of ongoing tradition making process of sort of whether you call it balancing or navigating the these questions of of mystery and presence or absence and presence negative positive existence essence these are all sort of at stake in, in various ways, in various societies, at various times. And so a part of mapping our present moment on these terms, I think, is also a sort of defamiliarizing methodological approach to not just history and, and the history of political economy, but also to the way philosophy ideas themselves are mapping and tapping into the way we practice political economy and practice struggle and practice um, a sort of organizing for change. And and I think if we can juggle all of those things, it, it will help to flesh out why we wanted to have this conversation in the first instance. Right. That's helpful. And I think we should um, spell out now so there's you know there are these broad you know heterogeneous traditions of the negative and the positive way the 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 apophatic and the the cataphatic way but let's come back to what got us going on this which is sort of our present circumstances right so Mm -hmm. you know um left twitter is positive positivist sent tweet right (laughs) what's the problem what's our problem with that right um, I guess I would I would start by saying that we are not anti-positivist <laughs> uh, impulses, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, we're, we are all about spelling spelling out both uh, critically and affirmatively what's wrong and what would make things better, 
right? Whether it's a Green New Deal uh, or a job guarantee or housing for all or abolition. Um, but there is a tendency in contemporary left media uh, that wants to, I would say, skip over the mystery, skip over the, the kind of problematic, move to the level of uh, solutionism, and then argue and, and speak like hell uh, <laughs> all about what, what must be done. And even though we're often in, often in solidarity with that work, we think it's important to kind of hold open the enigma of, you know, the way things are structured, because that's important for, for praxis as well. Mm -hmm. And, and I think in, in ways that we'll get to, right. Um, there is a necessity to think about what isn't, um, because we want to change what is right. And so if we're only talking on the terms of solutionism or in contracted time scales or through uh, the sense of what is possible in an immediate, often reified or unnecessarily foreclosed way, it actually affects the way we conduct our practice and the way we rhetorically spell out our imaginations for a future and, and what that can mean to, to provision or, or, you know, provision whether it's emotionally, intellectually, or so-called materially, what it is we're striving for in our work and in our actions. Right. So just really quickly, you know, listeners are probably by now somewhat familiar with our complications around uh, MMT arguments for so-called monetary sovereignty, right? And we point out that, you know, the nation state, um, while uh, at present a important, uh, I'll use a word you like to use a lot, <coughs> node of agency <laughs> and participation, it is not the absolute horizon of political contestation uh, and uh, we insist upon all kinds of other interdependencies that run in all kinds of different directions um, well beyond the nation state. And even though MMT discourse, uh, at least the scholarship, doesn't, uh, a lot of it doesn't go intensely nationalistic, um, it can because that problem uh, that is implied in the word sovereignty has not been fleshed out, has not been critically fleshed out uh, according to the, the assumptions uh, that, um, that, that sovereignty has baked into it, basically. And so we end up getting into kind of, uh, you know, confusing crosstalk <laughs> with various folks online um, who, you know, are sort of accusing us of, um, uh, you know, reifying the state or nationalist politics, and we're trying to explain that, no, we're not, um, but not because we are uh, throwing out the nation state, you know, right now overnight, even if we have massive critiques of it, it's because we don't understand the nation state even on its own 
its own terms of sovereignty, right? And that that's getting at this deeper question, this kind of negative, wait a minute, how how are things structured in the first place? And let's not just work work uncritically with what seems to be articulable in the here and now because that's what's been naturalized, that's what's been reified, that's what is intelligible when we say words like nation-state. And what you've just done is, of course, practice our sort of analogical method in the sense that you are not positing some absolute non-presence of this thing called a nation-state, right? But you're also not positing some absolute positive sense of the nation state as totalizing and, and so yeah and this is actually splitting one. the difference but not in a sort of synthetic way right and not not in an not in an absolute negating way so that's one of the responses we often get uh is if we're if we are not affirming sovereignty as a concept uh then some folks think that we're saying um that the nation state is meaningless, right? Mm-hmm. That that and and that's absolutely not what we're doing, right? And because in in this sort of sense of absolute or univocal sort of totalizing readings of these concepts is, I think, at the heart of what we're trying to move away from, and why we wanted to position a critique of negativity and positivity as a problem problematic as a problematic polarity for methodologically thinking about and with these sort of questions that we return to over and over on this podcast. So I think we've done a pretty good job of spelling out sort of, at least in in vague enough and and specific enough terms to keep this sort of analogy to the negative and the positive uh, up in the air as we we talk. Um, What it is we're trying to do and and how we're speaking to a sort of uh, a body of work that we've been developing on this podcast and elsewhere. And so I thought perhaps we could dig into some of the more granular detail of where we find the negative and positive traditions, whether it's online or, I mean, by now everything's online, including academia, but um, in, in, in these sort of circles in in academia as well as as on twitter yeah so um you know i just became aware of uh uh somebody who has become uh, like an overnight uh positivist superstar who positions himself on the left uh and that's dr liam bright he works at the london school of economics i think i'm late to this to be perfectly honest i'm uh, so I, I suddenly became aware of him, and it was really, uh, I don't know, curious, serendipitous <laughs> that we've been talking about a certain kind of contemporary left positivism, and then, uh, and then here he is, right? Here he is as the kind of embodiment of that, and really spelling it out as a as a project. And um, he's not just a positivist in a general. Uh, uh, cataphatic tradition. He's a positivist in the sense that he's a an avowed logical positivist, which mm-hmm. means that his work is 
plugging back into uh, the contributions of a certain school uh, that w that called themselves the logical positivists that arose in interwar uh, Vienna and uh, worked out a, a, a you know a very specific cataphatic method mm -hmm. uh, in response to a variety of other discourses, especially in the German context. Um, uh, namely, uh, the work of Martin Heidegger uh, and also the Frankfurt School, and did so from the left, right? From uh, th these are mm -hmm. mathematicians and physicists uh, who were, you know, trained in in the sciences in this way, and they were um, they very much saw themselves as being part of what's called Red Vienna, right? The uh, you know the the kind of left mobilization of you know socialist ideas and policies uh including you know wonderful public housing and many other things in this interwar period which we would of course want to celebrate right and what i what bright seems to be doing from what i can tell is he wants to remind us that the logical positivists while later on would become associated with kind of reactionary anti-political or apolitical analytical philosophy in truth uh were deeply political and saw their what they were doing as serving the working class and um it's funny because i think i have been more aware than you of dr liam bright on twitter um, where his handle is literally at last positivist right um so there's this sense of of revival but also a sort of revival that is already lost perhaps to, <laughs> Last to be stand. <laughs> yeah to be to be a bit more uh negative with uh reading the aesthetics of his twitter handle right um but i've been aware of of liam bright on twitter for a little while now but mostly through uh the sort of register of of sort of him like posting about Matt Brunig a lot and liking Matt Brunig's work, which we're going to get into, but also um, he's often been dismissive of MMT for quite a few complicated reasons that I think uh, become more clear when you start to dig into his political economic approach. Um, but it was it was sort of serendipitous was the right word for it because we were already talking about positivism on Twitter, um, and how this is, was sort of like uh, not real not just a problem but a a sort of manifestation of the platform right a sort of uh, the 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 method for discussing these things on Twitter is very much in the sense of this is happening and then this is happening and then that is happening and this is what we should do immediately right and and. You know, sure, there are threads that spell things out in more detail that posit uh, future f potentials and possibilities that try to defamiliarize things and open up problems. And there's always uh, an intermingling of both. But in, in as as you mentioned, in in a lot of ways, there this is met with a certain kind of confusion. Um, but and anger. I mean, when and, we tweet well, non-positivistically, right. people get. So mad, like it's irrationally right. mad. Yep. Very angry. And, you know, we've, you know, that anger as a, as a response to confusion is a sort of age old tale, isn't it? Right. Um, 
something that is confusing uh, makes makes often makes you anxious. And that is the case, you know, not just speaking of others here. Right. Um, and so I, I, you know, I think it's important to spell this out, too, because there is a way in which positivism flips and turns on its head. Right. Um, but we can get into that in more detail, I think, as we're discussing these sorts of things. And, and as you know, as we've seen, right, there's this if something doesn't fit into a certain structure, it's ex it, there's exclusion is at stake. And I think that is why, for me, I'm really interested in logical positivism, because it it actually explicitly thematizes that sort of problematic which you know the base superstructure problematic being one of the formula like a, a a formative conceptual um rejection that we posit on this show and and that is that is relevant so so you know back to this sense of the history of the logical positivists of course certainly opposition to martin heidegger which we can talk about in more detail but also as you mentioned this opposition and um, I've I've heard Bright talk about it as a sort of false opposition that was predicated on personal grievances, which I think is a mistake. <laughs> but um, <laughs> but it, it's a mistake that positivists might tend to make um, to the Frankfurt School, who themselves are diametrically opposed to Martin Heidegger. So there is this sense here that I think um, Heidegger certainly lives large in the minds of logical positivists. But um, one might think about the way there is a sort of mutual sort of indebtedness to Heidegger in, in complicated ways with the positivists and the Frankfurt School. And I mean that in a very non-positivist sense. Um, but that's perhaps putting the cart before the horse. So... Yeah, maybe let's we define should... what logical yeah. positivism is more at length. Yeah, so um, they uh, affirm, they posit a principle of what's called verificationism. They insist that only what is empirically, empirically, materially, sensuously uh, verifiable can be spoken about as um, as involving any kind of uh, truth. Um, and part of their verificationism is also a dialogic one. And it's very much in, indebted to what we, you know, kind of sloppily call the scientific method today, right? It's uh, the kind of, um, you know, the, the community of scientists who are uh, coming together and are they're they're um, repeating each other's experiments and 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 engaging with the data and the community can can come and confirm that these actual sensuous material things processes uh, logical operations um, uh, are in fact not just true or false but but are are legitimately subject to even asking whether they could be made into truth claims. And this sounds sort of benign and innocuous from the point of view of kind of our STEM culture, right? Um, but what they were really trying to do, as you suggested, was 
pretty radically reductive. I mean, they were overtly trying to exclude and reduce thought and truth to a pretty narrow set of, I mean, they would say it's large, right? It's the whole universe, but they were really trying to get away from philosophy, critical theory of the Frankfurt School, the kind of problematics of metaphysics that, that uh, Heidegger was talking about. I mean, they were trying to say, that's all nonsense. It's all we don't, superstructure. We, we, what? It's all superstructure. Exactly. It's all superstructure. And they aligned what they were doing with one of Bright's uh, phrases he'll use a lot is they their method was trying to get down to earth at the same level as the workers, right? Mm -hmm. Materialism. And... You know, again, I would affirm their participation in Red Vienna, like, you know, yay, that's great. But, you know, this, for listeners of this show, this should be pretty familiar, right? It's like, well, superstructure is everything that isn't, you know, the workers on the shop floor and direct material sensuous interactions. And everything else is basically BS. It's BS in the sense that it can't it can't be entered into a process of verific of empirical verification. Yep. And you know, importantly, this this implicates language. This implicates um, a a certain sense of culture in in a way that we find deeply deeply problematic right because, because it's austere it's it, it's austere to the point of it it is a science of the world right i mean there's a reason why um many many on the left are deeply deeply suspicious of science and the enlightenment and this notion of the enlightened subject who can posit and verify things in the world and establish patterns that are verifiable to then theorize not just society at large, but also which particular steps need to be taken in a policy trajectory that can lead towards some utility maximizing place, right? I mean, this is this is stuff is deeply implicated in the history of not just like the philosophy of science, but also the history of economics. And, and it's one that, you know, we should state outright that MMT and the larger post-Keynesian or heterodox economics tradition, including many Marxists for that matter, <clears throat> is deeply opposed to um, for a myriad of reasons that are, um, you know, to say like just outright like we have solidarity with because there has been a long history of brutality that has arisen from these sort of positivist enlightenment methods and and structures and we can think about the destruction of the earth or the exploitation of you know minority and indigenous populations or even the history of weapons development and war making on these terms as well um and and so that you know that's not saying anything new to, to say that there's a long critical history of the enlightenment that that we that we are tapping into here um but also to say that right one can of course look to the history of 
the left in the 20th century and and even this red vienna moment where there are logical positivists sort of doing verificationism from the left um and of course hold abreast the possibility that there were good things done while also tapping into a longer trajectory of thought and thinking and tendencies of that are deeply deeply exclusionary and problematic but to do so would be to posit some sort of essence that is not necessarily logically verifiable in the first place (laughs) right and so we would need to move beyond this sense of the immediate materiality of philosophy in its own terms but um so that's just maybe a taste of why we have a problem with this um with this sort of practice and and philosophical mode of analytical or verificationism or logical positivism. But I also think we wanted to talk about why it is no surprise that logical positivism is sort of making a comeback, right? And everyone's sharing and in solidarity with these articles that Liam Bright or interviews that he's doing with people like Noah Smith, who have said some awful things and are avowedly liberal and, you know, um, and I guess I want to like ask you, Scott, like it would so it was deeply confusing to me in a lot of ways that like people were sharing this stuff and being like, oh, I'm done with metaphysics. Let's let's do positivism <laughs> now. Like it's time, you know, in the post Bernie moment to do positivism because, you know, the gobbledygook of metaphysics is just all it's just confusing and we're just going to confuse everyone. Uh, so why in this moment do we think that positivism is sort of making, you know, one could say a comeback in, in, in larger political terms, let's say, I'm being hopeful here, a last stand of sorts. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's a great question. I mean, I guess um, maybe an unsatisfying place to begin is that I think, you know, we continue to be in a, a really interesting fraught but also rich moment of paradigm crisis right and i think people are reaching for new answers you know what is what is critique after bernie going to be like i think Mm -hmm. superstructure has has some answers and they're different from from other folks answers uh i think there is a sense of here is somebody smart and charming uh who is getting a lot of notoriety who's giving kind of, let's say, popular cover and articulating the positivist impulses that were already there on the, mm-hmm. on the left and on the, you know. So, so I think it's like, yeah, 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 yeah. I've always wanted to have a, a smart, you know, philosophical way <laughs> of rejecting philosophy <laughs> right? rejecting, re- rejecting superstructure and, yeah, and thinking exactly. about a sort of material base that is both the the point of production but also in some deeper sense of right. the material the cosmic base if you will <laughs> right yeah the atomic base yeah <laughs> right uh yeah and and in that way it's it just seems super symptomatic you know mm-hmm. um yeah and and then of course the, it it really doesn't seem like there, there's any accident here that uh, that bright you know will continuously shower praise on 
the likes of Matt Brunig, um, who, as you know, we all on this podcast know, is a, you know is a neoclassical Marxist. You know, he's like a you know all you need to do is maximize the utility and the the consumer uh, preferences uh, of all workers, and um, and that's it. You know, um, I don't know. Maybe you want to talk more about about that yeah. connection. So I think there are a lot of ways to get into this, right? And so Matt Brunig is one. And then there's also this deeper sense of what we could call market socialism um, that Liam Bright has explicitly uh, affirmed and articulated his affirmations on the terms of basically that this is a scientific approach to socialism, right? One that is verifiable, where we can trace the tax receipts and how they're being distributed across a sort of accounting apparatus, right? And already we're starting, right? We're talking with we're starting with sound finance and market physics, right? Yeah. Um, and so you know, he's he's called out the Brunigs, both Matt Brunig and Liz Brunig, as as people he would like to affirm, which, um seems odd to me especially given the fact that Liz Brunig is perhaps like the most important at least commentator in pu- in the public discourse of a catholic left which <laughs> right strange um, bedfellows yeah which seems you know explicitly not positivist though wink wink anchored in the in market physics anchored <laughs> in market physics and a cat cataphatic theological tradition of love and charity right yeah. so so we could you know we could talk for a long time but this is actually a nice way to link up the theological stakes here that we wanted to sort of work with and and think about and keep keep at stake because i think this even the very existence or non-existence if we want to keep with the steam of this theological these theological stakes actually betrays positivism's own logical verificationist uh method in its in its exclusionary bracketing of the negative right of of what we could call the other of superstructure right um and right, the so, other on their terms yeah right? in, not indeed. on our terms right and so you know when we're talking about an eliminative uh, method of mm-hmm. of re- reduction uh, to what is supposedly present at hand, right? Um, we get this, we get this market physics, which seems to operate in a vacuum according to its own neoclassical laws. And of course, there's lots of ways of talking about it. And you can talk about the ways that the state can so-called redistribute that the that that uh, physics of value. Um, but we would suggest, right, through MMT, that that's not actually the picture of political economy. That's not actually how it works. The, the state is not outside. It's not. It's not an intervener. Um, it is thoroughly, thoroughly conditioning of of economic life um, through legal mediation, through cultural mediation, um, and the state is itself uh, nested within much larger global processes of legal mediation, right? And you, and it's not to say that somebody like Bright or Brunig 
the Brunigs wouldn't acknowledge international relations or wouldn't acknowledge law, but, but what they do is they reductively bracket it out, only talk about it when they want to, and, and don't reckon with the fact that their, their, their supposedly empirical object is a total reification that bears very, very little uh, uh, relationship to the actual structure of the world. And, and what I want to spell out here with taking, I think, the important analogs for with logical positivism to market socialism, right? So this philosophical to sort of policy or, or, you know, political practice analog to this metaphysical theological structure, which they would bracket, but we want to include because we want to include a a sense of a totality that is not reductive, right? That is open, um, is that our contention right which to use the positivity of bright and brunig's position and then that of logical positivism generally to with a sort of negative sense of what we have to offer with mmt and thinking on metaphysics is that to see the state or governance structures as more than a passive lever for filtering a market that is physicalist in nature, you need to explicitly thematize metaphysics. Um, And so their reductive eliminationist verificationism and positivism is precisely our evidence to the fact of the necessity of thinking metaphysics with MMT and why MMT is so confounding to positivists. It's because it doesn't inhere within this reductionist base logic. You need to open yourself to a larger totality of whether you call it superstructure or whether you call it mystery or whether you call it a sort of a, a positive, uh, a, a sort of problematic of what, it, what the essence of production or reproduction or society or theology has meant and g- continues to mean, without opening yourself up to that, you're left with maximizing the pie, with maximizing utility and amidst fixed preferences that might change over time, but are still fixed in every given temporal moment. And that is a way of linking and then critiquing the way logical positivists are actually doing metaphysics, but erasing the metaphysics that they're doing in the name of reduction. And, and we can even talk about the very specific ways this leads to a sort of problematic approach to you know, what we could call left praxis and, and, and uh, as particularly analytically how we want to think with intersectional left praxis. Yeah, and I just want to insert along the way that they don't have positivism or the logical positivists um, doesn't, doesn't or shouldn't 
have a monopoly on, you know, democratic verification, right? It, verification or, you know, a, a sense of collective effort in construct, making sense of and constructing a reality doesn't have to happen along positivist terms. You can, you can critique and reject the, the reductive premises of positivism while also still being open to the collective processing of the world, right? And I think there's a We're way doing that, that now. Yeah, right? Yeah, I mean that's what podcasting is is yeah. taking part in. Right. So this it's this idea that like, oh, I mean, it's because they hate Heidegger, right? And they hate these 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 ornate esoteric writers. And they mm-hmm. think that truth only comes from the kind of monopolistic font of the individual right when in truth no that's no these texts get read and reread and reread in different contexts and debated about and written about i mean that's that's a process that's a collective process right and before we get into like you know this brings up concepts of like calculation right which is is often critiqued on the left for good reason right there's this sense of of aggregation and calculation and then filtering through systems which are meant to be constructed as, you know, in some instances neutral, though I think some would try and push on that. But there is this sense that the medium of processing is neutral as long as you set up the variables in a way that's explicitly left-wing. Whereas many who've critiqued the enlightenment processes would suggest, no, 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 like we're podcasting. This is not a neutral medium. We have to explicitly thematize the, the lens, right? The, the medium, the, the filtering mechanism as filtering itself uh, in order to get us to the point in which we can actually think with all of the we can think all at onceness, right? We don't have to reduce down. But again, this comes this comes to metaphysics. But before we get into perhaps what we could see as the sort of negative example of this polarity, which I think will help then posit backwards, you know, all these fun wordplay, you know, uh, <laughs> posit backwards uh, why, you know, this sort of resurgence of logical positivism is really a problem. I wanted to also spell out why it's really a problem in positive terms, Um, which is, you know, there is a sort of critique of whether we could call it critical race theory or intersectionality that lives in this positivist space, right? Um, And, you know, there, there are a lot of ways one could talk about it and get at it and it is complicated and i don't want to necessarily say well it's just a flat critique because it isn't but there is this sense with this sort of verificationist processing analytical process right that bright has said that we sort of can pick and choose how we want to put race as an as a sort of analytical variable into our um into our models right and we can literally call them models right it's from utility. this perspective right exactly. race is utility or race critique is utility right it's like will will including race in our analytical models um produce outcomes that we think will be useful and that is that is the logical logical positivist uh, metric for thinking with 
a social phenomenon, right? Because it's eliminationist and reductive, you can always just reduce it away. Now, there's a way for them to try and have their cake and eat it too, which is to say, okay, we can not think with race here, but race is important and the evidence speaks to this. So we are going to include it, right? Which I think speaks to why some people on the left find this method compelling. It's because, well, we can, because we believe it's useful, we can bring it into the modeling. But there's a number of problems with that, right? Uh, number one, that leaves the possibility for not including it, which the Brunigs do <laughs> pretty much all the time. Right. right? And, and they do it not just through their positivist discourse, but through their aesthetics, right? Through, through their yeah. superstructural, right? I mean, their, their yeah. whole Scandinavian white utopia is, is evidence of this as well. Yep. And so it's a, like, so once you open the door to not thinking about race, like then you have class reductionism. It's just right there for you. You know, you just, it's really, it's a really easy thing to do. And in class reductionism, then we can say race is epiphenomena, right? It doesn't, it doesn't actually speak to the, right? Cause, cause race is not material, physically inscribed, which is true. Um, race is a social phenomenon. Therefore, it's not a prime physical mover for this sort of base, the sense of base ver positivity that can be reproduced, which then some positivists will say, well, no, that's not true because race does have material consequences. Therefore, race should be put into our analytical schematic. And I will say that yeah, yes, right? Race should be put into our analytical schematic, but not because of verificationism. Because, not because of this sense of reductive verificationism, but because race as a social phenomenon, right? As what some class reductionists would call an epiphenomenon, has a guiding causal logic and an effect on our world, right? I mean, you know, one could read Stuart Hall for five seconds and and figure this out. You know, <laughs> it's not this is not new to to, no. to anyone, right? But but I think the problem that we want to point to is that this posits race as a sort of in on the uh, after a choice, right? So there's this sense of the subject, the Enlightenment subject, who looks at the world and then makes a choice based on evidence that race is real. Um, so there's almost a voluntarism as a methodological structure that is situated prior to this inclusion of race. But in practice... Yeah, definitely. Sorry? Oh, yeah, it's definitely. I mean, it's overtly voluntarist. It's you know, overtly it's, voluntarist, right. Yeah. And so in practice, what we have is Brunick, right? Because the problem with voluntarism as a practice of methodology and a, a problem of reductionism is you're always having to rob Peter to pay Paul, right? You're always needing to exclude someone in something. So like, for example, the, the family fun pack, which we just talked about at length and its problems uh, on uh, the superstructure episode that I recorded two days ago, which will be out sometime when this is out. Um, 
is how the family fun pack <laughs> by definition excludes queer people who or or anyone who doesn't want to have families now it excludes queer people because they don't because the family fun pack doesn't have any aesthetic sensibility for queer people having families, but it also excludes queer people who don't want to have families or people who don't want to have families in general. And so this reductionism is exclusionary by definition. That's its, that's its benefit to, to, to the positivists, right? The benefit is, is we don't have enough to pay for including everyone. We don't have enough mental capacity to, account for all variables. Therefore, let's find the causal mechanism. And this sense of voluntarism opens the door to a methodological structure that excludes race. And the Enlightenment has proved that over and over and over and over. Um, we, we, I, you know, that, that is well-trodden ground. We don't necessarily even have to spell that out. But... Um, and this can lead to some of the Frankfurt School stuff. But I think the last thing I wanted to say about this, too, is that if you actually open the papers that Bright publicizes as speaking to his positivist economic theory, it's all neoclassical. It's, it's utility maximization amidst irrational preferences, amidst institutional constraints. It's game theory, right? It's you start with the individual, you're starting with the economic agent. And this is the entire problem with political econo economy for the last 100 years plus. Um, and it's baked into his premises and it's break baked into positivism's premises. And it's not something that, and it's what ex MMT explicitly has marketed its intervention against over and over whether we go back to knop with medalists whether we think about credit theories of money whether we think about the anthropological implications of some of the the work that has done been done in the mmt space whether it's michael hudson or john henry or we can think about fred lee and we think about his heterodox microeconomics you know kelton and and pavlina cherneva there we could go across the board, the neoclassical premises are exactly what MMT has spent 20 plus years fighting against. And positivism is like, well, let's just bring it back. Also, MMT is bullshit. And then the left says, <laughs> this is great and new. Um, and, <laughs> and, and forgive the, the, the rant, but as you can tell, I'm annoyed. Fair enough. I'm annoyed. So... So you should that, be annoyed. Yeah. So now that we've explicated what positivism is, perhaps it's time to look at sort of negativity in its guises. And and this is, you know, an academic tradition that perhaps we are more familiar with operating within. But let's, you know, let's let's start to crack open some works of, dare we say, negative theology. Um, in in a critical theoretical way and uh, start talking about what that is. So I'm going to hand it over to you for that. Well, I want to use um, <laughs> Bright's term for this. He, 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 it's, I think it's his neologism, or I don't know, maybe this is just a joke that logical positivists, you know, tell like when they're smoking cigars together in back rooms. But he keeps, he likes to use this term <laughs> apofundity. As this like um, 
profundity plus <laughs> apophaticism, and it and it's that's really good... snarky. I I got I gotta admit that's pretty funny. It's <laughs> pretty funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we have to get our apophundity on, um, and I I thought we could do so uh, with a major thinker who wasn't actually in the the Frankfurt School proper but was a, a very much a precursor and um, a, a teacher, really, of, of probably the most famous uh, and important Frankfurt School thinker, uh, Theodore Adorno. And that person is somebody that, Max, you've spent a lot of time with, and, and his name is Siegfried Krakauer. Do you want to introduce Krakauer a little bit? Um, I've got some yeah. quotes we can read, but... Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'd love to introduce. I always want to introduce Krakauer. Um, I'll try and not go on for like 30 minutes about him. But um, <laughs> so Siegfried Krakauer was a German Jewish critical theorist, architect, uh, you know, social theorist and, and magazine like and newspaper writer in Germany uh, during the Weimar period. And um, he wrote from a dialectical tradition, uh, a German philosophical tradition that was one part Kantian, one part Hegelian, and then later uh, quite avowedly Marxist. Um, and he would write in the, the Frankfurter Zeitung, in the, you know, in the culture section um, of the, you know, the culture sections of newspapers that are, don't exist anymore, except maybe with the uh, with the exception of some articles that might be coming out in some magazines yet to be announced, but that's a little <laughs> teaser for some of the, the people who uh, are in the know. Um, but he, Krakauer spent a lot of time thinking about cultural form, right? The, the epiphenomena, the superstructure, the surface level phenomena that the positivists rejected right and and at the and, same time right we should say that interwar period yeah at the same time so this is concurrent with positivism in in red vienna and it is a, a response and a reaction to a sort of reductive marxism that uh that was around you know coming out of whether it was you know whether some call it eastern marxism which is reductive on its own terms but um, the second international or Marxism or, or other such, con you know, ways of historicizing this. But um, th this is sort of out of a tradition of uh, the critical, theoretical, often German mode that sought to contend with the totality in all its guises and and to to critique reification wherever it uh, wherever it sort of stood, which you know invokes this. Lukács's work on on the critique of reification and and it's important to say a critique of positivism on its face like not even just negatively Im Im implied but that that is explicitly what is being critiqued here um and and so Krakauer had a long career wrote many books had to flee as a as a German Jew to the United States which was harrowing uh followed the same path that that Benjamin sadly didn't wasn't able to complete and um, found himself in New York and later at Columbia University, later, later um, you know, working for the war effort and, and in sociology departments uh, in, a, in a Cold War liberalism moment. And there's a complicated history. But the point is, is 
I think we'd want to emphasize is his aesthetic work in the Weimar period is a great window into what this sort of negative approach, right, to these questions of social formation and social form can look like. And and to if Bright is going to historicize the positivism of Red Vienna, we want to historicize and, and bring in the negative illumination of uh, the interwar Weimar period as its, you know, as its opposite. Right. And I, I was thinking we could read a little bit, um, maybe just the beginning of one of early Krakauer's most famous essays that's called in English, The Mass Ornament. And basically, he's preoccupied in this essay with, well, specifically this like group of this dancing troupe and this kind of style of dancing um, that he names the Tiller Girls. Um, this is actually a much broader phenomenon that, that stretches beyond Europe uh, and, you know, all around the world. And it's basically a kind of highly rationalized, uh, rigorous choreography of mostly female dancers um, that tend to, while, while they are seemingly eroticized uh, and, you know, are often scantily dressed and whatnot, um, they are kind of put together in these like machine-like configurations that he found to be um, very relevant <laughs> expressions of the so-called superstructure, aesthetic, popular um, representations, which in the United States is probably most known um, through the expressions of Busby Berkeley musicals. Um, you get these like, um, these very now iconic uh, top-down shots of these um, mostly women, sometimes men, arranged in all of these kind of abstract patterns, essentially. And he's he's thinking to himself, he's looking at uh, the popular culture of his day, and he's like, what is this? What's the deal with this stuff, right? Like, what's going on? Why these machinic, seemingly, like, aesthetic, but also highly rationalized assemblages? Like, why, why are, is... Why is pop culture getting off on these things so much? And mm -hmm. he doesn't have, you know, a cataphatic answer. He doesn't have one answer, one univocal answer that is going to be then verified by other observers. He has a rich, complicated interpretation. And um, I was thinking, I'll, let me just read the opening to this to this essay, and maybe we can talk about some of the impulses in it and how it's very much working against that positivistic mode. Mm -hmm. So here, here we go. The position that an epoch occupies in the historical process can be determined more strikingly from an analysis of its inconspicuous surface level expressions than from that epoch's judgments about itself. Maybe we could just stop there. So what, what's going on? So he's interested in a, a historical totality that's changing over time, right? Um, so, you know, things don't stay still. He's also saying we should be, we should be suspicious of essentially logical positivism. Like, the, you know, right. an epoch's judgments about itself, its explicit judgments that it's verifying, don't tell us everything we need to know. 
And in fact, we need to look at what people aren't paying attention to, right? And so what he, what he calls inconspicuous surface level expressions, he's, he's saying, you know, popular culture, superstructure, our popular aesthetic forms, these, they seem inconspicuous. They seem like they're not making didactic arguments or univocal command, you know, they're not, they're not recommending policy, right? <laughs> but, but he wants to suggest that actually there's some, there's deeper impulses there that if you actually pay attention to it um, and take it seriously, um, which he, the other thing he's doing here is he's basically saying, fuck you to a lot of the kind of peers around him who are ensconced in the German idealist and German aesthetic tradition and are just want to talk about 19th century bourgeois art. And they think that popular culture is, they snobbishly dismiss it as just stupid and, and not worth thinking about, right? So he's saying, no, 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 superstructure is where it's at. Pop culture is where it's at you all are outmoded and you are behind the times and you have no idea what's going on. You have no idea what's going, not just because you're not plugged into the trends, but like you don't know what history is doing. You don't know what politics and economics are doing because you're not paying attention to these, these seemingly inconspicuous surface level uh, expressions. Do you want to add something to that or should I read a little bit more? Yeah, I just would want to say, like, how would a positivist approach thinking about the Tiller girls? Well, a positivist would go interview the choreographers and ask them, well, are, what, what are you doing with this piece, right? How are you theorizing, <laughs> structuring this dance number? And then note that and then ask other choreographers how they are doing that and then do a statistical analysis of the <laughs> relevance of which words come up and then come to a series of conclusions that are verifiable as to what the aesthetic form is can be reduced down to um, and in order to recreate it uh, perhaps in an algorithmic way um, which is to say it's not what Krakauer is doing <laughs> right okay I'm gonna uh, read the rest of this first paragraph. Since these judgments, right, these epics judgments about themselves are expressions of the tendencies of a particular era, they do not offer conclusive testimony about its overall constitution, right? So, you know, history is bigger than any given moment and its judgments about itself. The surface level expressions, however, by virtue of their unconscious nature, provide unmediated access to the fundamental substance of the state of things. I think we would push back on that unmediated, mm -hmm. um, but I also think he might agree with us. Um, and I'm, even, I'm not sure what the German is there, but I don't think he means direct. I just think he means maybe more intense. Well, right? uh, what, what he means also is just not, not structured by a subject's sort of knowledge and like one could call like not functioning through the apparatus of spirit right if we're going to think in a Galilean yeah. sense right which is a sort of subject's judgment upon itself and its intentions in a world um so right. the sense so of unconscious is i think perhaps this sort of negative essence that we'd want to hold on to right and this is the that that sense of you know freud's importance to uh, the Frankfurt School mm -hmm. project here in its kind of embryonic form even before 
you know, were full-fledged into the Frankfurt School. He says, he continues, conversely, knowledge of this state of things depends on the interpretation of these surface level expressions. So what does that mean? It means we got to do some work. We got to interpret. We got to basically do some apophundity, right? Um, and then the, the last sentence is the fundamental substance of an epoch and its unheeded impulses illuminate each other reciprocally. Now, what I want to point out there is this term unheeded impulses, which again has a kind of Freudian bent, but it also has a, a deeply political bent here, right? And he's including in the historical process and getting a sense of what's going on in a particular reality, in a contested reality at a given moment, right? In this interwar moment, he's saying the unheeded impulses, the things that are not intentionally being spoken to, that's part of the reality, right? That's not mm -hmm. something to be excluded as bullshit along with the bullshit of mass culture. Those, those impulses are part part of history, part of our social reality. And, I mean, importantly, I think people understand this on the terms of ideology, right, in a lot of ways. And that's where perhaps this is sort of has some clarity or some, some play with a, a sort of more discursive register on the left. Um, but what Krakauer is really saying and what how we want to integrate this into our register of a sort of MMT humanities metaphysics is that these unheeded impulses are, per are precisely where potential for new structures lie. And positing negatively, right, which seems to be a contradiction, um, a future or even a past that is unheeded is a potential future for uh, new ways of relating that are just, that are inclusive, that thematize a sort of all-at-once dependence at a macro and a micro and a mezzo level. And so that's where that sort of tap, can tap into a, a thoroughly metaphysical art articulation that blends a uh, a predicative or cataphatic positivist structure with a negative apophatic positing of some sort of alternative unheeded future. Um, and, and, you know, importantly too, uh, uh, the potential unheeded um, barbarisms, which is what Krakauer's primary, you know, if I had to essentialize his, his Weimar work, that's his, that's his work. It's, it's positing a, the sort of fascist unconscious that that is about to to make itself present in a German context, and he's um, he's he's showing us the way it's already making itself present. Precisely. Right? And so the Tiller girls, while the ma this mass ornament takes various expressions around the world, he says he says that there is a consistent kind of logic to it, and it it is a kind of pop aesthetic expression of uh in modern Enlightenment rationality uh, taken to a kind of extreme uh, through Fordist and Taylorist uh, production models and methods. And he doesn't stop there. Uh, he then goes on to find all kinds of contradictions and unheeded impulses and the ways that what he calls, you know, the, the, the 
the work of enlightenment turns round on itself and becomes a kind of um, a kind of a barbarous myth myth making but then he also suggests that well but there's actually something creative about myth making but when it is let go in this kind of you know uh unchecked uh enlightenment positivistic way that gets us into trouble so he's dealing with all of these tensions and um and and ultimately bringing bringing to the fore you know what what all these kind of contested impulses are and 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 who are we right at this moment not not you and i max but who who we are in that moment and what are the dangers and what what are the potentials and you know this is something that we've done on superstructure and obviously you've done not only in your published work but in your in your teaching sort of over and over again right we've We've looked to cultural forms. We looked to the podcast Red Scare and did a sort of apophatic reading of its symptoms, its unheeded impulses, its traumatic sort of bases, its associations with a sort of austere sense of monetary solidity and violence in order to posit an alternative, just, inclusive MMT green post green new deal world right and so th- this is something that this is sort of ongoing practice and, and an ongoing influence in in our work and and it, perhaps positing it up up against the sort of positivist reductionism of base superstructure f- philosophy and metaphysics and i'm going to call it metaphysics because it's a physics that posits the meta as excluded which is necessarily still a metaphysics um in the guise of, of a similar profundity of logic and analytical processes um, to, to sort of show how we have these sort of two sides that are not necessarily diametrically opposed in some dialectical sense, but are necessarily taking different routes to articulating a metaphysical totality of as history, as, as, as historicity and futurity as any. Uh, Heideggerian might say, which we, we need to get into. But um, I think that we've spelled out Krakauer. Perhaps it's time to move into another example of someone who uses a sort of negative theological approach uh, on the left, this time later on in the 20th century, who, you know, many people work have worked with and for and, and, and in general has a, a sort of a great um, a, a great body of work that, that means a lot to a lot of, uh, you know, leftists, whether in academia or not, and that is Friedrich Jameson. Yeah. Um, so I think one thing I want to say just in response or in, to kind of further clarify what you were just saying mm-hmm. is that, you know, in many ways, uh, we're not in reinventing the wheel here. You know, this is this kind of apophatic critical theory cultural analysis approach is kind of standard fare right in humanities academia or a lot of humanities academia so we we would align ourselves very much with that approach in contradistinction to you know a kind of you know, a, a wanting to complicate and problematize a left positivism and, and, and certainly a left logical positivism. 
at the same time, because, um, because we have an analogical approach rather than a univocal approach, and we start from MMT premises about credit and governance and law, and not from the market uh, and private money, we also break with or complicate, not break with, complicate the Frankfurt School and critical theory tradition in our own way, right, at the same time. Uh, so I think that that's just important to spell out that that we're doing this kind of double movement. And, and it's not simply that we're siding with Frankfurt School and the critical theory uh, camp and, and Krakauer um, against the logical positivists, that they, in a certain sense, share, you know, I wouldn't necessarily call the Frankfurt School folks neoclassicals. Um, <laughs> I think the they're the more... positives are, anyway. No, no, they're much more like classical political economy and they you know they they have their own barter story they do that comes yeah um and and thinking of the market as the primary site of causality and capital as um like the prime mover of of modernity and to use your term that kind of uh uh the state and laws being kind of passive or inert uh forces that simply uh, preserve class structure and preserve capital's movements, essentially. Um, and of course, right, we're not going to deny, you know, um, private, you know, private corporations and capitalist control and seizure of the political process. I mean, obviously, you know, that's that's plain. Um, but it's a question of causality. And it's a question of where you where you start. Um, so yeah, do you you want to talk about Jameson? Um, and uh, and some of his work because I think what Jameson does is while incredibly capacious and he's really taking on you know he's such a polyglot he reads everything he sees everything he listens to everything he has a sense of the history of everything certainly in the modern west but also you know he, he plugs into to, to global post-colonial and chinese culture as well and he's really impressive but but he writing in the neoliberal period or what at the time in the 70s 80s uh was called the postmodern period or the condition of postmodernity. He really digs in, and he's not the only one, right? But he really digs in to positing capital and now multinational capital or the so-called world market as the causal foundation for basically everything, for all aesthetic. Well, no, that's not entirely true. He talks about emergent forms and recessive forms, but the, the cultural dominant that is what he calls the postmodern logic of late capitalism, is all uh, a complex structural uh, and kind of wild expression, dizzying expression of multinational capital. Right. And so if we're thinking about what, at least in this sort of negative tradition, right, if we're going to, if we're going to, sit with this imperfect analog of positive and negative what is important is to think about the structure right so jameson as you're suggesting reads cultural expressions and phenomena and this and it's uh 
unstated or, or even unaffirmed, unconscious sort of propositions for as an invocation of a sort of array of relations um, that are ultimately, again, as you suggested, this sense of a neoliberal global capitalism. And, and so what we don't like, what we want to affirm about Jameson's method is the way that he utilizes this sort of positive articulation of superstructure as referent to negative essence, not even necessarily the way he's doing it, more as its sort of topological structure, right? The entire shape of it. Because, of course, we disagree on what multinational capital is, uh, right? The sense of world money or, or even value. Um, and we disagree on the historicity of the neoliberal moment. Uh, and we disagree on what these cultural forms mean down to even the, the your work on the blockbuster, right? Which which I'd uh, recommend listeners not only go to the Patreon for, but some of the conversations that we've shared on whether it's Avengers Infinity War or Close Encounters with the Dirtbag Left on Superstructure. Hmm. Um, but what I want to highlight here, right? And some people might be familiar with Jameson and some people might, might not be. And I think we should read a little bit from Jameson if you have an excerpt in a moment, but is that again, positivism is not what it's in the sense that like some people on Twitter are, are positing it to be, which is like, Hey, look, we're reviving this thing that gets us out of the contradictions. Right. Which is like, we can reduce down, but also still include a sort of choice into this, right? Like, okay, we, we can have better ways for processing and thinking about the world. Um, and look, all, all the Marxists out there, I know like dialectics suck. This is way better because it, it's not contradictory. We just posit the world and then we process it and think about what step-by-step approach to solving our problems are in a scientific way, which is surprisingly prevalent given how simplistic and reductive it is. Um, but this is in opposition to things like Jameson, right? This is in opposition to what we could call postmodernism, which in right-wing discourses is a, is a reactionary dog whistle <laughs> that talks, that speaks of academia in, in exclusionary ways, right? I mean, uh, you know, certainly uh, we have read comments about us that have been like, well, then, it's the thing, it's the natural response to Derrida um, and Derrida's postmodern, post-structural critique and its exceeding equivocations on the matter of meaning and, and class, right? And, um, or, or even people who, who call Foucault neoliberal, which again, we have complicated opinions on. But to historicize positivism and its, and its last stand slash resurgence is necessarily to say, it's a rejection of cultural thinking about the cultural form in which capitalism takes. Whether we even agree with that structure, it's important to say that because that then maps it onto what you know the Brunigs would perhaps say, or the Doug Henwins of the world would perhaps say, is a sort of MMT poetry, a sort of bullshit. Let's laugh at it on Twitter because this is doing poetry through MMT. And, you know, I, I know you are quite familiar, Scott, with those uh, 
those heinous critiques of your work. But I love them. Uh, you love well, of course you do, because uh, you have a, a <laughs> cataphatic charity-based theological <laughs> position. Uh, but so that's that's it's important to historicize that before then we perhaps can now offer an example of what Jameson is talking about. Yeah, and you know I think. I think now it's probably worth spelling out that we are trying to develop both negative and positive impulses that um, that complicate both this kind of po intense positivism that we're you know that we've been critiquing, but also the tradition that we come out of the the we might call it too negative negativism right where there's not enough positing right that, i mean this is one of the things this is one of the problems and we're not the first to point it out right but we have a different reading of it one of the problems with the frankfurt school critical theory tradition which you know uh jameson is a latter-day example of is that for the most part there are no positive politics right now there are exceptions you know Herbert Marcuse was a Frankfurt School thinker who spent many years in UC San Diego that was very much, um, you know, active in the 60s and important, um, you know, uh, an advocate of Angela Davis. And um, I mean, we, we, we could talk about the, the exceptions. You know, Jameson has a book about a very strange book about um, um, wanting to create full employment through the U.S. military, which is just so odd. I'm really symptomatic, but I digress. Um, too much positivism so, on that one. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it's a symptom of not having enough positing or cataphatic uh, commitments that right. suddenly when you decide you want to do it, you, <laughs> you you kind of flail and and instead of instead of positing, say, a Green New Deal or a or a public works program, you say, well, you know. What is there? There's the military. Might as well use that. That is right? an already existing public works, right? This exactly. is an already posited public works program, right? And right. importantly, I, I think I want I want to say too here, like, um, what we mean by positing here is like this is how money works historically, anthropologically, and how it works today, with in a Federal Reserve system with a dollar reserve globally and you know, et cetera, et cetera. All the work we've done on Money on the Left podcast, interviewing people who've written about how money, culture, history are interlocking. That is our that is our positive project, right? Um, and then, but, and, and what we're doing is starting from those re-predicated premises in order to offer an, uh, an alternative, apophatic, negative vision for what is possible and, and, and what the social totality and its unconscious yearnings and desires and, and repressions um, are, are doing in our, in our present moment and historical moments and then how we can think a, a new world with that. Right, exactly. And then um, maybe uh, for purposes of um, not going on for like <clears throat> four hours here, um, I'll just breezily discuss an example uh from jameson so he he very famously in in the first 
a major chapter of his well-known book, Postmodernism or the Cultural Logic of Late Capitalism, he, he's reading all kinds of cultural forms um, from pr present and past. Uh, he's writing this book mostly in the 1980s. It comes out in the early 1990s. And this particular essay had come out in 84. So he's really writing at the onset of what today we call neoliberalism. And one of the most famous readings he gives is of the Bonaventure Hotel, which is in downtown Los Angeles. Ten minutes he's drive trying... from my house. Yeah, <laughs> field trip. And and he wants, it's, you know, it's, it's a new kind of postmodern architecture. And he's trying to make sense of it in relationship to you know, largely modernist architecture. So modernist architecture tends to be more um, overtly utopian. It, it seeks a kind of autonomy in the cityscape. It, uh, it, it sets out its own aesthetic style in a kind of a, a, a big, tremendous geometrical uh, gesture that implants itself in the middle of a, a city fabric and says, no, we're going to have something new, something different, something utopian, right? And, um, you know, he doesn't necessarily affirm that, but he he does seem to lament the passing of that. Uh, I, I don't think we would lament the passing of an austere, autonomous aesthetic. Um, but he's, but he's, you know, a critical theorist, you know, a, a, an Adornian, a Krakowian enough to say the historical process is showing us that this is no longer the thing, right? Um, and there's a new logic. And this, this postmodern hotel, the Bonaventure, uh, is very different. And it's got a glass reflective skin that repels the city around it. Um, it doesn't have a grand... Uh, entrance and and the same kind of style of lobby the the lobby of a of a earlier or modernist hotel uh, would have a big entryway and then have a kind of inviting you know on consumerist terms an inviting kind of atrium that allows everybody to kind of um, do their business anonymously and make their way in the world as they need to. Whereas this postmodern uh, construction of space uh, hides the entrances. There, this hotel is built into a hill and you come in in the back on, a, a, you know, I don't remember what it is, like floor six, right? And then you don't come out into the lobby itself. You have to kind of walk a little ways and then you have to descend on stairs or uh, escalators or elevators down into the lobby. And meanwhile, the one sense of cardinal direction gets all mixed up because space is bent and contorted in all these new strange ways. And he remarks on how our um, traditional sense of volume and geometry is like shattered by this space. And he really performs both kind of his own experience being dizzy in this space, which he notes ironically, even though it's filled with shops, um, all the shopkeepers complain that they don't get business because nobody can find their way uh, to them. Um, uh, and he suggests that this is a, you know, a non-identical, right? not univocal, but a non-identical expression of this broader logic 
of multinational capital, world money, high finance, what we call neoliberalism, precarity, you know, all the things we're sort of familiar with in, in, in that period. And on the one hand, oh, and he also says, he also, before I say on the one hand, he also is really keen on creating a sensuous experience through the aesthetics of his own language of dizziness. And not just for himself, but for the reader. And he actually shifts from the I, like I can't get my bearings in this space, to you, like you're immersed, you can't find your way. It's a very famous analysis. It's taught all the time in humanities classes. It's in a way thought to be kind of a classic and outdated or whatever at this point. But what I would say for us is that on the one hand, we would affirm that, right? I mean, he, there is a there is an apophundity ap here <laughs> where he's like, look, you know, the way that built space is being arranged is a complex expression of the changing structure of the whole, right? And he was really insistent on getting at the structure of the whole. So we're like, you and I, you know, our project, we're like, yes, awesome, wonderful. At the same time, because he reifies the market and the world market and world finance as unhinged from governance and legal mediation, he, he, even though he so desperately, talk about unheeded impulses, he so desperately wants to have a better world. Like he, he, he has problems with this world. He does not like the direction things are going, but he doesn't have, he doesn't have an alternative analysis that are not based on market metaphysics and, me and market principles and market physics. And so he doesn't have an alternative conception of the world. Instead, he's caught in the immersive imminence of the Bonaventure and its dizzying architecture. And then he involves you as the reader in that immersive process in ways that I think are actually analogous to the Hollywood blockbuster that's emerging at that moment. Not the same as, but kind of like, where like the blockbuster in Jameson's text, we're, we think that we're, we're led to believe at an unconscious kind of aesthetic or phenomenological level that, well, the way the world works is according to this market physics. And, you know, we can be against it. We can critique it. We can say we want a better world, but, but that's really the causal center of everything. And so the immersive dizzying experience of the Bonaventure ends up for us reifying, reifying the neoliberal aesthetic in ways that we, what he wants to critique, but can't actually move beyond. And, and so in that sense, his predication of what a market is, is based on a false premise of reifying physics, right? And so the play of positive and negative which is always at stake. And I want to step back and do a little meta reflection. So as we're winding up about this, um, we're winding down, we're winding up. <laughs> well, you know, this is, you know, you just did a, you just did a negative, uh, you just did an apophundity on my own <laughs> slip. Um, but um, the, the movement of positive and negative that is always sort of synthesizing to use a dialectical term, but to this sort of anal analogizing e each side um, is it's important to 
see them as constant, right? In some sense. And I can, I, I want to talk about that through like Heidegger and Marx, which is the best combo. Um, and, um, and so we can then see what Jameson is doing and say, methodologically, we like this a lot. Here, there's some problems in your predication, which then produce problems in your ne- in your negative illumination, um, and this is the sort of double movement that that we are we are invoking here, and and it's one that that's is why we're indebted to these these you know amazing thinkers, but also in the Marxist tradition in the Marxist tradition, which is why it, I think it's so funny that people think that we're like MMT humanities like has it out for Marxism. Um, because we're we're coming from a tradition of critical theoretical Marxism, right? Um, that then we are extending and we are doing a sort of extend ex- extensive critique. That's what critique is. It's a it's a yes, but you know, and and that's what we're doing here. And so, as evidence of this, though, I wanted to then step back to thinking about what the positivist, what the positivist predication, negative illumination, move, double movement is, right? Because, of course, the positives will say there's no negative illumination. We're just positing and verifying and, and iterating, right? And, and, of course, we want to say, oh, no, actually, you're negatively illuminating a world, you know, for example, with the Family Fun Pack, where we are producing a lot of straight families, right? Like, this is the idea. That's what's being invoked here. It's Matt Iglesias, one billion Americans, right? Um, <laughs> which is really bad and awful. Um, and so what then I wanted to say is, it's like positivism has this critique of Heidegger and his metaphysical, swabian, uh, <laughs> swirling, <laughs> philosophical, metaphysical mode, right? And I'm going to say metaphysical like six times. Um, but yeah, right. It's po- <laughs> it, the poetry of it. Um, but importantly, Heidegger has his own positivism. Right. And and I and, and you can look back to a, a, an Adorno little podcast I did really recently to think about it from an Adornian perspective. But um, how Heidegger is positing of death produces a sort of positivism right a sort of verificationism well i can verify that every human life dies um and therefore existence and essence is can be illuminated from that posited posited structure but and it even so being is being toward death right so being is being toward death but even at a at a at a strictly sort of political economic social level right rather than this sort of phenomenological imminent level Heidegger is basing his sense of what he calls authentic being and inauthentic being off of a particular predication, right? So inauthenticity is this social formulation. Like you could even go as far as to say is capital, right? Once thrown thrown into mediation and capital and these logics of social pressures from all sides. I mean, there's a reason why Heidegger you know, lifted large conceptual sections of being and time from Kierkegaard, who was seen as the first, you know, uh, critical media theorist and was also very anti-Semitic. So, (laughs) but there's this, there's this, there's this othering 
an externalization that occurs within his schema where he predicates authentic being and then excludes inauthentic being. Now, that's not to say that he doesn't acknowledge the the force and 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 indebtedness we all have to inauthentic being, but that he is again making a voluntarist positing of the bounds of analytical analysis by which then we can determine essence from existence, which is exactly what Matt Brunig does, which is a hilarious sentence. But, um, but that's exactly what's what's going on here, right? And so then and then his his essence, right, is of course the sense of of you know, what is it? His essence is poetry. That's what Heidegger's ultimate, like the substance of poetry as the the mode of thinking and rumination upon one's authentic being that disregards the inauthenticity of the world. And so that is the the movement, right? You posit the you posit the existence and and you you reduce and eliminate the variables and then you exclude the the what is deemed superstructure and then the essence comes out of your analytical structure and so weirdly the positivists are heideggerian or heideggerian <laughs> is a positivist um and and this and you know adorno makes this argument on the terms of death i want to make it on the terms of political economic predication here which then leads back to this question of, okay, then what the hell is Marxism? And what does this have to do with MMT on the one hand and then metaphysics on the other, right? Because there are many that say, well, Marxism is purely historical, right? There's not, there's not a metaphysical argument going on here, which I think at one level is just preposterous on its face. But especially when you're looking from this perspective, right? we get to this sense of, okay, what is predicated as the analytical causal structure? It's it's materialism, right? It's, it's the mode of production, which, you know, whether you take capital volume one, which is the sense of this phenomenology, which again is the same medium, this phenomenology of the commodity, which is the same metaphysical mode as Heidegger, um, which traces the, Heide the, the commodities movement and then seeks to determine where to exclude and delimit superstructure from base. Um, we have barter as this, as this predicated essence, right? As this predicated ground for what exchange mechanisms that ultimately produce capitalism look like. And of course, if you want to take the capital volume three version, it's the exchange that happens at the point of contact between multiple societies, right? And and the, and that is the barter. But either way, right? There's still this movement of exchange amidst two non-related entities that come into contact, which is imagined to be the ground that that is then alienated by capitalism, which then you need to identify what capitalism is. But that ground is very much a, on the terms of Marxists one which is analytically posited, right? It's not historical. There was no barter. Marxists know this, except they're positing it as, a, as an analytical structure from which to work through an imminent critique of political economy. And let me just say, li liberals know this too. I mean, you know, they, 
they don't call them origin myths for nothing. Like, exactly. It's, 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 a, it's a story we tell ourselves to describe what's going on now, and it, it becomes a form of positing. So there's no – any thinker worth their salt in the Western tradition does not posit some kind of just naive, you know, metalism or naive barterism. Anyway, I right. digress. And you so, I mean, on. this is how we get the sense of the individual, right? Because everyone knows that people come from – you know, even at, at its most reductive level, families at least, right? So, like, there is no individual. Like, people don't pop out and then f- are fully formed Lockean subjects. This is the positing of a myth that then becomes the analytical structure upon which you build. But then you, you have to determine what is lost in the movement from that posited myth to the society which we live in. And that is what alienation is as a function in Marxism. So then what is the negative essence that's being illuminated, right? What is under erasure in capitalism, right? It's our human connection that we had as purely exchanging entities, right? This this is the, what do you want to call it? The, the MCM, this is the value form that gets in the way of, of our embodied reciprocal re- intercourse, right? I mean, this, these are all words that Marx uses in the German ideology and in capital and in other places. And so what is positive then, right? Negatively positive, this is always the fun word games, as the, hmm. as the end point, right? In Heidegger, it's death, right? But in, in Marxism, it's communism. And what is communism? It doesn't exist but it's premised on the analytical structure of barter exchange as the ground. So communism is the exclusion of the inauthentic superstructure that is the capitalist value form, right? So it's a return to barter in a social form, right? That's the dialectical structure. But this movement of positing and then analytically analyzing within your structure of positing and then invoking what's being erased by that structure is exactly the Marxist structure. And that's exactly the Heideggerian structure. Again, they're analogs, right? It's not identical, but the movement of the structure is very similar, which is also the positivist structure. And what we want to say is we want to repredicate that ground as not barter exchange right? As inalienable money as dependence. And then rerun that inclusive and non-exclusive formula to posit a future out of that predicated analysis of our world. Through our- and we want, right. And we want to insist on what you've been calling the double movement, yes, which you've teased out of the logical positivists who basically repress it, Right. <laughs> um, and Heidegger and Marx, who variously avow it. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, where I think I would want to culminate this discussion in a provocative way is to say that Marx was right. Marx and not, right. not Marx is not Marx is right wholly or univocally, mm-hmm. but he Marx had a sense of this double movement and yes. we want to keep that double movement alive in a way that I think a lot of Marxists on Twitter or Marxist journalists or Jacobinites uh, don't they they want to positivistically repress that double movement and mm-hmm. repress the apophatic 
openness. Whereas we would say, you know, you're being a, you're being bad, <laughs> bad Marxist. That's right. Because because Marx, Marx hasn't an, an apophatic impulse, right? Unheated impulses, to use Krakauer's language. That's right. So we're doing this sort of apophatic analysis on these works and texts and social formations, which is to say, and, and our conclusion is Marx and Heidegger are both double movement humanists. Um, now we can be critical of the particular components as we just have been, but that's really fundamentally important because it, it also shows how positivists are double movement humanists with a particularly repressive set of assumptions about their own method. And um, how we're formulating this is to be uh, not only honest about this double movement, but also to really see what it means if we take non-zero-sum, inalienable social dependence and inclusion as that first premise and play it out through these cultural analogs over and over and over again in order to, to, to really articulate and then they'd be activated through a, from a movement and organizing perspective, which again, we haven't reinvented the wheel on that, through these movement and organizing tactics in order to build that world um, and to, to build a world of non-zero-sum inclusion, justice, social dependence, and inalienability. And that's what the MMT Humanities is. And that's how I think, and that's why you should uh, join us. <laughs> yeah and i'll just reiterate that it's an ongoing process and that the the not knowing all the answers is is central to that process we we have a we have a lot of new things to say uh and we have a lot of new things to say about old things uh, but we don't an expression that we often use to describe certain methodologies that we don't like we talk about it as um they present uh the cake as baked right yeah. here's the the baked cake now eat it right <laughs> uh, consume it uh maximize your your utility uh through it whereas i think we would say come help us bake the cake like mm -hmm. what is this cake what is this cake <laughs> right we don't we don't even know yet i mean we we have a sense like there's a there's a cake there but but this is a project, you know, and and it's never going to be over. That's the beauty of the double movement. It's never over. It's always ongoing, right? It's it's forever ongoing, and there's always work to be done. And in that way, it's sort of a an analog for, you know, the reproduction of society, but as a method, at least in the way we see it. So when I say come join us, I mean don't just like like our tweets, but like there's work to be done. You know, come tease this out with us.
Love 